Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The FT After the floods, what will happen to your insurance cover and premiums if you have to make a claim? Annuities in a year of investigation results in another year of investigation. And passive investment funds are getting cheaper as a price war breaks out. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most downloaded podcast. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my two new FT colleagues, Adam Palin. Hello. And Emma Dunkley. Hello. Along with a special studio guest, pensions expert, Roz Altman. Hello. It's been pretty hard to avoid news of flooding this week. Although the actual number of homes flooded so far this winter has been a lot fewer than the numbers affected by the floods of 2007, the duration of the crisis has been unprecedented with many homes underwater since Christmas. The areas affected now include large swathes of the western suburbs of London, where per capita incomes are high and houses tend to be more valuable, so it's going to be an expensive affair for insurers. Many of those making a claim will no doubt be concerned about the impact on their annual premiums, or even whether they'll be able to get flood insurance in future, especially if their property has flooded before. So how do the insurance companies work out how much they're going to ratchet up your policy costs, and whether they're even going to cover you in the future at all? What about government assistance for areas prone to flooding? And what about those special situations like high-value single items or cover for buy-to-let properties? Adam Palin, a new addition to the FT Money team, has been investigating. Adam, obviously, for those people with filthy water swilling around their living rooms right now, probably have more urgent things to think about than insurance. But after the water has drained away and the damage has been put right, the true cost will probably become a bit more apparent. Is there any rule of thumb as to how much your premiums might rise following a major claim like this? Well, unfortunately, Jonathan, it uh, doesn't seem as though it's that straightforward. Having spoken to a number of experts and people in the industry, it seems that it can range and it won't necessarily go up. If your house has been flooded for the first time in, say, 10 or 20 years, it may have no impact. However, 
if, for example, it's the first time that your house has been flooded and maybe it hasn't been included on flood maps in the past, you may be re-evaluated and uh, your provider may indeed increase the premium for next year. At a national level, the true cost, once it's all totted up at the end of this winter, that will impact at a national level what we're all going to be paying for our house insurance next year. And if you live in an area that is prone to flooding, or if your property has flooded before, is there a danger that you might not be able to get insurance at all? Well, the industry is guided by the statement of principles, and that uh, ensures that, as part of their agreement with government, that they do collectively ensure that they will be able to offer you house insurance. Now, there's no cap on this, so uh, inherently there's going to be some properties, particularly those with a very high risk of flooding, where the premiums and the excesses that are going to be payable for any claim, uh, there's no cap on them, so they could be very high, and indeed they could be very prohibitive for many households. Now, there's a government scheme due to come into force next year that would put a cap on the level of premiums and perhaps on excesses as well. Can you tell us a bit more about that? It's a scheme that was agreed between the Association of British Insurers and the government last year. It's yet to be put into effect, but the idea is to bring hundreds of thousands of people who may not otherwise be able to afford house insurance in in the coming years, as more of us are at risk of flooding, actually to bring them inside the umbrella. The policy would put a um, a levy on all house insurance policies of around £10, and it would ensure that, with a few exceptions... Under this flood re-scheme, all households will be able to afford their house insurance, irrespective of whether they live in a floodplain or not. Now, some groups have claimed that their members or the the interests that they represent will be excluded from flood re, as this um, scheme is known, particularly those living in leasehold property and those buy-to-let landlords, which is a fair number of people these days. Should those individuals be worried about their exposure? Well, the reality is that they're already paying very large premiums if they're in high-risk areas. So having spoken to a number of parties, it's not that things are going to desperately change for them, but more that they're not going to be included in the new flood scheme. And the agreement that uh, insurers and the government have reached means that only individuals who are taking out domestic residential policies, and this excludes freeholders leasing out their properties, and indeed buy-to-let investors who are renting out their properties, they will not be eligible under the flood scheme in its current guise. Now, whether when the legislation comes uh, through to full fruition, whether it changes or not, remains to be seen. But at this stage, they're outside. So for those people, the best outcome would be that the flood scheme is amended so that it does include them, and the worst outcome would be that they are still able to get insurance, but the cost of that insurance is not capped as it would be if they were a normal householder. Is that right? Absolutely correct. Adam, thanks very much. There's more about the flooding and insurance on our website at ft.com forward slash money and common questions relating to insurance are answered in this weekend's FT Money, which is available from newsagents on both Saturday and Sunday as part of the weekend FT. Still to come on the show... Low effort stock market investing for a fee of just 0.1% a year? But first, let's return to the issue of annuities. We've been reporting for months now about the problems with the annuity business. Around 400,000 savers buy an annuity each year, exchanging a pot of accumulated savings for a guaranteed income from an insurance company, often the same one they saved with. Many of these people get poor value for money, 
perhaps because they have a small fund, they fail to shop around for the best deal, or they don't disclose medical conditions that could get them an enhanced income. Many people buy an annuity without taking any advice, even though it is an irreversible decision and might not even be the best option. For a year now, the city regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, has been probing the annuity business with a special focus on the lack of shopping around. Its conclusions were released this week. We'll talk about the detail in just a moment, but the gist of the report is that the market isn't functioning in the interests of consumers and it needs a shake-up. There will now be what the regulator calls a market study, looking at broader issues than just shopping around. That's the good news. But the bad news is that that study may take up to another year. I'm joined now by Ros Altman, an independent pensions expert, economist and advisor to the government on retirement matters. Ros, first of all, what were the key problems that the Financial Conduct Authority identified in the annuity market? Well, the regulator has identified a number of concerns. In particular, it has raised the issue of people not actually moving away from the pension company that they saved with so that they have to just take whatever rate their pension provider offers them. And very often, in about 80% of cases, the regulator assumes that they could actually get more pension for the rest of their life if they did move to another company. It also found problems with price comparison websites where annuity brokers were advertising services for customers but were misleading those customers, not explaining some of the most important things about annuities. For example, that once you've bought one, you can never, ever change it. So it's absolutely vital that you do the right thing at the beginning. And why can't we have action on some of these issues now? Isn't another study just kicking the issue into the long grass for a year? I think that's how a lot of us who are concerned about the customer interest probably feel. You know, it is really welcome that the FCA has investigated the situation. This is indeed the first full in-depth study of annuities that the regulator apparently has ever done. It is not a surprise that they've found failings. But the problem here is that so many people buy annuities. You're talking about a thousand people a week. So every week's delay means a thousand more people are at risk of buying the wrong product that they can never change for the rest of their life, getting a poor deal or getting the wrong type of annuity. Now, the whole issue of annuities and pension costs and, and custom and practice in pensions, that's all shot up the political agenda in recent months. What do you suppose that Steve Webb, the pensions minister, will make of this report and its conclusions and, indeed, news they're going to go to a, another study rather than taking immediate action? Um, and after all, he's recently been accused of caving into the pensions industry himself. From everything I've heard, I think, Steve Webb actually is really anxious that this particular issue is addressed. And I assume that he might be rather disappointed that so far we've got another review rather than actual reforms. Indeed, Steve Webb has himself suggested that the issue of small pension funds, which the regulator identified as being an area which offers the worst value and has the least competition, if any, for customers, 
might even need to be solved by people not buying an annuity at all, but perhaps exchanging their pension fund for an increase in the state pension so that they get much better value. And finally, Ross, you've been very critical of many aspects of the pension business over the past few years, um, saying, for instance, that it's too complex, that it's confusing, that it's inflexible and so on. If the FCA and the government eventually do take action, what would you like that action to be? What would you like to see changed? There are so many areas of this particular market that need changing. It's hard to identify any one. But some of the most important issues would include making sure that providers who are selling annuities are treating customers fairly. And they can't possibly do that unless they are required to make some kind of basic checks on whether this product is suitable for them. We currently have companies selling standard annuities to people in very poor health, and that cannot be suitable. A simple question of what sort of health do you enjoy at the moment would identify customers who shouldn't have a standard annuity. Banning commission from the selling of annuities by anybody who doesn't give advice so that there's a level playing field, at least, between advice and non-advice would be another area that I think is really important. Ensuring that customers have a fair chance of understanding the material that they are sent by their providers and also know what their options are, which will include not buying an annuity at all. Indeed, not necessarily buying any product. Many people are buying an annuity when they're still at work because they've reached their scheme's pension age, but don't realise they don't have to annuitise at that point. There are also many customers buying annuities who could take the lump sum as cash, but are not made aware of that. And If they went to an annuity broker, the annuity broker would merely be selling them an annuity, not making sure that actually they're doing the right thing. So there are lots of areas, value for money, not hiding the costs of buying an annuity, which currently can be hidden away until right at the point at which you're almost signing on the dotted line, if you like. And from the point of view of consumers, what can they do to protect themselves in advance of any government action to protect them? Presumably the key thing is to shop around. Actually, the key thing for any customer is to take advice. Shopping around is the central part of the reform agenda. But if you're shopping around for a better rate for the wrong product, that isn't going to help you enough. You actually need to get advice and understand what all your options are rather than just shopping around for a better rate, believing that the most important thing is to get the highest starting income rather than looking in the round at what your needs will be. For example, if you have a partner, you don't want the best rate. You want a joint life annuity, which might pay you slightly less income at the beginning. But if you die, then at least your partner will get the benefit of your pension savings rather than all of it going to the insurer. Thanks very much. You are listening to pensions expert Ros Altman. And you can read lots more about the controversy over annuities in this weekend's FT. And to understand why this is so important, check out our cover feature this weekend. 
It was written in a very engaging and witty style by the FT's pop music critic, and details his many attempts to sort out his own personal pension, battling officialdom, arcane disclosure, silly rules, and high charges along the way. It's a great illustration of why regular folk find dealing with the financial services industry so difficult. We'd always be interested in your views too. You can reach us on Twitter, the handle is FTMoney. You can leave comments on articles at our website, which is ft.com forward slash money. Or you can email us directly. The address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. The cost of investing is falling, which is unequivocally good news. Thanks to the so-called unbundling of fund charges, fees for active management have dropped to around 0.75% or 75 basis points each year. Now that's left some passive funds, which just track an index, looking rather expensive with management charges of 0.5% or more. So the passive industry, which now accounts for around 10% of fund assets, is hitting back. Legal and General has cut the management fees on many of its trackers to just 0.09%, while this week DBX Trackers said it would cut costs on many of its exchange-traded funds. These costs will, of course, partly be offset by the introduction of separate fees by investment platforms, but nevertheless, overall, they represent a meaningful reduction in the cost of investing. I'm joined now by another new recruit to the money team, Emma Dunkley. Emma, can we start with the differences between index tracking funds, as offered by LNG and so on, and ETFs, as offered by DBX? Index tracker funds literally do what they say on the tin. They follow an index, such as the FTSE 100, up or down. They tend to price once a day, and indeed LNG are one of the bigger providers out there. You can typically buy them through fund supermarkets, such as Hargreaves Lansdowne, pretty cheaply. ETFs actually look pretty similar. The main difference is that they have a high level of liquidity insofar as they price through the day. Similarly, they have low costs and the shares, as the name suggests, trade on exchange. So you tend to buy them through brokers. OK, now these fees that we're hearing this week, sort of fractions of percent, sound very, very low. But are they the only costs inherent in owning tracker funds or are there other costs that come on top of those? Now, you have to be quite careful, actually, because the way some of them are advertised... Um, They're only suggesting the annual management charge, which look really low as a headline figure. So you think, oh, great, that's pretty cheap. But actually, when you take into account the ongoing fund charge, this can be a bit larger. So, for example, we revealed earlier this week that LNG are offering an emerging market tracker, which has an AMC of 18 basis points. Actually, when you look at the overall total expense ratio, it's closer to 50 basis points. On top of this, you have to remember that you have broker commissions to pay when you buy both ETFs and trackers. And there's also the issue of tracking error. So, for example, when you have an ETF following an index like the FTSE 100, it won't follow it perfectly. There might be a bit of a deviation in the way it follows the index, and it tends to underperform. Okay, and sometimes some funds have large tracking errors than others, I guess. Yes, so, for example, in the emerging markets, um, ETFs and trackers will typically lag the index more significantly than an ETF or an index tracker that follows a more liquid, larger benchmark such as a FTSE 100. And this is largely due to the uh, makeup of the underlying index, so the fact that the underlying stocks are less liquid and harder to trade. Now, you mentioned um, emerging markets there in the FTSE 100 in, in the UK. What sort of things generally can people invest in using these new sort of breed of ultra-low-cost trackers? 
anyone looking for a sort of mainstream benchmark as a core for their portfolio, such as the FTSE 100 or European Index, index trackers, there tends to be quite a wide range available from the likes of LNG, BlackRock, and they're very low cost. But if you're looking for a punchier, racier area, such as the emerging markets or for commodities, then this is where ETFs really come into their own. So there's a wider toolkit, so to speak, of ETFs available in terms of the asset classes you can cover. They even cover areas such as commodities, so you can buy an exchange-traded commodity to track the price of gold, for example. And finally, the debate about uh, active management versus the passive approach is probably as old as investing itself. But just to recap, what are the pros and cons of a passive investment strategy as opposed to paying a fund manager to go and pick stocks for you? It's an archaic debate insofar as people suggest it's exclusively one or the other. And nowadays, it seems to be the case that people realise you can use both active and passive together in a portfolio. It's not necessarily a case of choosing one over the other. But in terms of the pros and cons, you know what you get when you buy a tracker because it literally follows a stock market up or down. So you have that certainty in your portfolio as to what you're investing in. Whereas obviously with an active fund, there's not the same level of transparency and you're at the whim of the investment manager who picks the stocks. The other advantages are that ETFs and trackers are pretty low cost, so you can help to reduce the overall cost of your portfolio by investing in those, as opposed to active funds, which generally tend to be higher cost due to the management expenses. OK, thank you very much, Emma. There's more about passive funds, including a table of those very cheapest offerings, in this weekend's FT Money. Other highlights in this issue, my column looks at whether it's time to buy mining shares, while David Stevenson looks at some interesting opportunities in emerging markets, for any contrarians happy to buy amid the current turmoil there. And we've more on the expanding range of buy-to-let mortgages. If you want to add your own comments to articles, let us know about a hot topic or share your thoughts, you can do so via Twitter. The handle is ftmoney, or you can leave comments at the foot of articles at ft.com forward slash money, or you can email us, the address once again, money at ft.com. We'll be back again next week, but for now it's goodbye from me, Adam, Emma, and our special studio guest, Ros Altman. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.